0: Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In this season of Religious Renewal, we bring you a story of religious dissent. In 1638, many of King Charles I's Presbyterian subjects gathered at Greyfriars Kirkyard in Edinburgh to sign the National Covenant. By renewing their own covenant with the Almighty, they also pledged to resist encroachments on church government by the King and the innovations in doctrine he sought to make for the Church of Scotland. As we've discussed in previous episodes, the 16th and 17th centuries were a time of religious upheaval and political discord. Reformation and civil war remade European society, especially in the British Isles, and profoundly shaped colonial American history. Civil war and religious strife eroded the idea of the divine right of kings, leaving Charles I headless in the end. These revolutions helped to create the 18th century British world that George Washington rebelled against, as well as the kind of monarch George III would become. Today's episode builds on these recent conversations, including with Dr. Michelle D. Brock and Dr. Marcia Beliciano, and more as I explore the Covenanters movement in 17th century Scotland with Dr. Kerry Schultz. For many of the thousands of Scots Presbyterians who settled in the American colonies in the decades before the American Revolution, Including a man like the Reverend John Witherspoon, the only minister to sign the Declaration of Independence, the National Covenant was a seminal moment in their religious history. Dr. Schultz takes us back to the 17th century to understand the origins of this crucial contest between King and Kirk. I caught up with Schultz over Zoom as she was finishing up her graduate studies at Queen's University Belfast in Northern Ireland. She is now a postdoctoral fellow at the British School in Rome and hosted the podcast Research in Scottish History, where Schultz and her guests break down exciting new work on a range of topics, from Scots in the Caribbean and the slave trade to the material culture of the hit series Outlander. Do be sure to check it out. Now before we get started, the team at Conversations and I just want to say thanks to all of you for your support this year. We've really appreciated the opportunity to connect you with leading scholars in early American history, innovative digital projects, and new podcasts that expand your horizons. We look forward to bringing you that and more in the new year. This happens to be our last episode for 2020, but we'll be back next week with a recast of my conversation with Washington Library research historian extraordinaire, Mary V. Thompson. Mary recently celebrated her 40th anniversary at Mount Vernon. And as we can all attest, we can't do any of our work without her. Well done, Mary. And with that, let's confront an absolutist monarch, with Dr. Carrie Schultz. Any last requests or last thoughts?
1: No, I think that's pretty much good to go. Yeah. Happy enough.
0: Great. As I said in my note to you, I, I talked to our colleague, Mickey Brock at WNL University here just down the road from me. You know, she and I had talked about the Scottish Reformation in terms of its impact on reforming or transforming the Scottish religious landscape, particularly with demonology, Satan and Satan hunting and all those witch burning and all that uh, (laughs) gruesome, but uh, very interesting stuff. Your work's looking at a century later in the 17th century, and, and Mickey and I didn't talk a whole lot about politics in our discussion. And, you know, I was really interested in reading your work, thinking about how the reformation itself remakes their political landscape and and looking at how that raises new questions about legitimacy political authority and power and so as we're getting into this discussion and thinking about your work and we're going to explore that over the course of the day can you give us a, a sense of what scotland's ecclesiastical and the political landscape looks like uh, by the time your story begins in the 1630s what what's going on in scotland that is uh, causing convulsions and, and, and causing people to, to question the nature of power and, and the legitimacy of power in this period?
1: So when we look at the 1630s and 1640s, we tend to see that as a period of sort of religious and political upheaval. But I think it's important to realize as well that by the time we get to the 1630s, we're looking at the culmination of decades of frustration that the Scots have with the Stuart monarchs. So the 1630s and the 1640s are kind of the culmination of that. But they have a long history of political and religious frustrations and grievances. So on the political side of things, we've got the dynastic union of crowns in 1603. And so obviously King James Sixth becomes King James, the first of England as well. Um, so he then goes to England and now the Scots are realizing that they have a bit less control with the king. They have less influence in his court. He's not living in Scotland. Um, they're basically just seeing a big change in sort of their relationship with the monarch. And so that's already happening in the early 1600s. And so then by the time that we get to Charles, that's kind of an increase in political frustration as well, especially among the nobility. Because they're now seeing, again, that Charles is definitely not visiting Scotland. He doesn't seem Mm -hmm. to have much interest in Scottish custom or affairs. He's really detached from the Scottish landscape. So I think that's really important when we look at the 1630s and 1640s, because you've got nobility and you've got regular Scots who are just frustrated with kind of the political situation um, after that union of crowns. So then on the religious side of things, we also see that Charles and James had been imposing different ecclesiastical reforms that have been really frustrating to Scots for a long period of time. So when we're looking at sort of the Reformation history in Scotland, many of the Scottish Presbyterians that we'll be talking about today, look back at 1560 in the Scottish Reformation as an extremely pure Reformation and sort of one of the purest in Europe, and they they want to bring it to this culmination in Presbyterianism. And they actually see that James and Charles are slowly dismantling the Presbyterian system of government in the Church of Scotland. So they're trying to institute bishops, they're introducing what some Scots consider to be popish worship ceremonies, so things like kneeling at communion. They want to introduce um, different sort of doctrines and ceremonies to help the Church of Scotland mirror the Church of England. So there's a big frustration that's kind of occurring over, you know, the 1610s, 20s and into the 30s. So we see a big culmination, though, in 1637 with the prayer book riots. And those are quite famous. Um, you know, the, the story of the stool being thrown in St. Giles in Edinburgh. Um, but those those riots kind of spread across Scotland. And I think that becomes quite a, a sign or I guess the turmoil and the frustration that Scots are experiencing. So, yeah, I would say when we get to the 1630s, we're starting in a place where we've already got lots of frustration um, amongst many different types of Scots, many different levels of society um, for different reasons.
0: I want to actually play with some of that. And and as you were talking in the beginning about James VI and first moving to England uh, during the Union of the Crowns in 1603 and how that was jarring. And I want to actually ask a a couple of uh, or maybe just one follow up on that and and maybe go deeper into their sense of frustration and, and that the point you made about their sense that they couldn't control the monarch anymore. Because I'm thinking, you know, in the American context, this is the moment when England is establishing or attempting to establish viable colonies in North America. And they uh, become accustomed over the course of the 17th century and in the 18th of not actually having any sort of personal connection with the king. They certainly put the portraits of the kings and, and their successors in their homes and in churches and whatnot, especially if they're Anglican churches, but they have no sort of Real experience uh, having the monarch in their presence, whereas the Scots up until that point do. And so, you know, can you talk more about how that was a dislocating moment for them?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I think it's kind of similar in the case that we see in the American colonies. So all of a sudden you've got yourself dealing with an absentee monarch. So when the nobility could be in the courts of James, when he was up in Scotland, when, I mean, the Scottish court has a very different sort of vibe to it, if you will, than the English Mm -hmm. court does. It's a very different um, sort of opportunity for the nobility to engage with James. And so I think they're now dealing with an absentee monarch who, his physical presence not being in Scotland is difficult just in the sense of kind of communication and influence. But then I think particularly when you get to someone like Charles, who is predominantly raised in England, And that's troublesome, because not only is he absentee in the sense of living in England, but he also just doesn't have that connection to Scotland that his father did. And so I think that's why particularly under Charles, it becomes even more contentious or more problematic, because he's really seeming to not be interested at all in sort of honoring Scottish custom, or even just really being interested in Scottish affairs. And so I do think you do get that sense, even in the American colonies, when your Mm -hmm. king is, you know, not necessarily accessible. He's he's kind of distant from you. I think that maybe challenges as well some of the, the loyalties um, that you might originally have. Um, and I think that kind of creates frustration ultimately that can play out in these sort of revolutionary moments.
0: I was just thinking too, as James becomes an absentee monarch, and, and Charles certainly doubles down on that, similar to what a lot of Scots experienced in the 18th century when the clan system breaks down, and uh, a lot of the clan chiefs begin moving to Edinburgh or London, and are essentially absentee landlords, and have no sort of affinity uh, or personal relationship anymore in the ways that they had with with their clansmen or people. And it's funny that they experienced it. Not funny, I'm sure it was not funny for them that you know they experienced that on a on a uh, national level in the 17th century, and then on a more personal level in the 18th century. Uh, they just just can't catch a break.
1: <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs>
0: As part of your work, you're looking at these people called the Covenanters. They are a people who are not particularly pleased with um, some of the things that Charles I is doing in the 17th century. Can you tell us who these folks are and what they do in Edinburgh when they sign this national covenant in Greyfriars Kirk?
1: So that's a that's quite a tricky question because I think scholarship is now showing that what it means to be a covenanter can vary quite a lot. Mm-hmm. So just to start very basically and very broadly, the covenanters are usually seen as a group of Scottish Presbyterians who really oppose the ecclesiastical reforms that Charles was instituting. So that's kind of the broadest sense of who a covenanter was. And so in terms of signing of the National Covenant itself, so that takes place on February 28, 1638 in Edinburgh. So that document really is a way of them protesting publicly the reforms that Charles is trying to introduce. So the whole document is basically filled with vitriolic language against popery, against idolatry, false religion. They're really keen to show that they're upholding, you know, the, the true religion, although it's quite vague in what they mean by that. Um, mm-hmm. So they don't necessarily stipulate Presbyterianism. They don't really talk about episcopacy, any of those kind of contentious points. And, but they do really want to defend this true religion against what they see Charles to be innovating on. So that's kind of what the covenant itself is. And it contains large sections as well of reference to parliamentary acts and sort of legislation that was establishing the true religion in Scotland. So they really want to show that they're kind of renewing a confession of faith, that they're Mm -hmm. returning to the way that the Scottish church was before Charles is innovating. So I think in terms of the covenant itself and what people are subscribing, that's kind of what they're subscribing to, is this upholding of the true religion and sort of, I guess, resisting those, those ecclesiastical reforms. But in terms of what the covenant actually meant to people and what it meant to be a covenanter, that's quite varied. So the work by Nikki Brock actually is fantastic. She's now showing how that meaning of a covenant changes in different regions or localities. There's been great work. There's a recent edited collection by Chris Langley that was published mm-hmm. on the National Covenant in Scotland. Um, and that's really useful because it does show variations again in the reasons why people subscribe to the covenant um, and you know what it means for different people. So if we look at the covenanting leadership, so the people who kind of author the document or those who go around getting people to subscribe it or those who defend it in kind of written works, they tend to be the people who really promote Presbyterianism and are very hardline Presbyterians. So people like um, Archibald Johnson of Warriston, Samuel Rutherford, George Gillespie, those types of people, they definitely have that sort of religious perspective. But you do get people signing for pragmatic reasons. So the nobility, for example, might sign for pragmatic reasons um, simply because they're frustrated with the king. You get people who sign under duress. Some people originally oppose it and then they change their mind and decide that they're going to sign it anyway. Mm -hmm. So there's not really one definition. And I think Laura Stewart's book, actually, Rethinking the Scottish Revolution um, from 2016, is really good in showing how the vagueness of that document actually creates an opportunity for state building for the covenanted state. So because it's intentionally vague, and it kind of just allows um, people to interpret what they will out of the true religion, you get underrepresented groups like women or people who maybe weren't university educated, um, now participating by signing and sort of becoming interested in politics and sort of the negotiation of the covenanted state. So I do think it's it's a complicated question because there's so many different, you know, <laughs> there's so many different reasons that go into it for why people subscribe. But on a very basic level, it's meant to protect the true religion, um, defend that against Charles's ecclesiastical reforms.
0: Well, that's the historian's favorite word is that, well, it's complicated.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I want to actually ask you a little bit more about the true religion, because uh, one of the things that struck me at the beginning of our conversation is when, is when you, you said that the Scots really see their Reformation as as purifying the religion in ways that uh, perhaps others had not. And we know we know there's a Reformation in England, you know, the, the Puritans carry Protestantism to uh, New England in an attempt to perfect it there. I mean, what do the Scots think they have going for them? Why do they think that, you know, they've really got it figured out and they've got the the good stuff. This is really the pure, true religion and nobody else comes close.
1: So I think part of that does go to Presbyterianism. So I think particularly in comparison to England, that's really important. So a lot of the leading covenanters would look at scripture and say that it actually mandates Presbyterianism and no other form of church government. Mm -hmm. So for them, having a Presbyterian national church is actually one of the purest reformations because it's the closest aligned with what scripture requires and demands. So in that sense, it's not just necessarily a reformation of sort of doctrine that gets you away from Catholicism, but it's a reformation of ceremony, of church polity, all sorts of things that go into kind of creating this true religion. They're also really careful to establish. So this category of adiaphora. so it's, it's a theological category that basically means things indifferent to God. So anything that isn't required or prohibited in scripture, is basically left open for human interpretation. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the simplest way to think about it would maybe be like, what time is the the church service going to start? So scripture doesn't mandate that. So humans can. But for the Covenants, they have a really small category for that. And they think that if something isn't required in scripture. It just should be left out of the church entirely. So they're very uh-huh. careful to get rid of a lot of extraneous ceremonies. They're trying to strip away idolatry and sort of popish you know, ceremonies, um, and really just make this the, the most reformed, pure church they can. So I think, yeah, that goes into a little bit about ceremony and doctrine, but I think also just the very nature of Presbyterianism. They think that's kind of the, the pinnacle of church government.
0: And can you talk a little bit about church government? Some folks out there might not be familiar with Presbyterianism or church government. Um, you know, I was raised Catholic, so I'm, you know, I'm used to hierarchy and, and top-down administration. But, uh, you know, Presbyterianism is uh, is a little bit different, uh, uh, well, very different in a, in a lot of ways. And so for folks out there who may not be familiar with what the characters in your story see as so vital and important to perfecting their religion, can you give us a sense of what it actually means to have a church government?
1: Sure. So Presbyterianism is basically church rule by elders. So what that means is elders are elected and then approved by the congregation, um, and then elders then kind of rule the church. So it's a very um, congregational base. It's, it's different from what you'd see, like, congregationalism in mm-hmm. the colonies. It's not the whole church body sort of participates in governance. Um, it's very much a form of eldership. But where that differs from at least the Church of England is it's very different from Episcopacy, so the institution of bishops. So the difference here is that in the Church of England, the king can appoint churchmen, so he can appoint bishops, and that gives him a sort of supremacy over the church or royal control. Presbyterian, by contrast, um, is very much from the church itself. So there's no need for a royal oversight. There's no need for like a top down approach. Um, and that's, I think, mm-hmm. one of the reasons why it's seen as so subversive in the period as well, because it basically the Presbyterian government, church government can function on its own apart from the king um, in a way that Episcopacy cannot. And so I think the king you know Charles or James; they both see this as really threatening to their to their ultimate kind of civil and ecclesiastical power.
0: So there is a democratic element here, and I was going to ask as a follow up: How does the king see this? Or you know, how do the royalists see the proper relationship between the Scottish Church and the monarchical state in this period? So it sounds like they're not too enthused about oh, these developments.
1: Yeah. So royalists are kind of complicated in Scotland at the time. So you do get some royalists. So I'm thinking of a man named John Maxwell. So he helps Archbishop William Mont to sort of orchestrate the prayer book in Scotland. So he would be a big supporter of Episcopacy as a divine kind of institution. Mm-hmm. So he would say that scripture, unlike the Covenants who are saying that scripture requires Presbyterianism, he's looking at it and saying, well, actually, it requires bishops in the church. So he's looking at scripture and saying it's kind of Uri Divino, so it's, it's required in scripture. Um, You get other royalists who simply think episcopacy is handy or it's quite useful. They wouldn't necessarily say it's the only form of church government that's required in scripture, but it's probably the best one. So you get kind of different royalist perspectives on church government, but most of them do support episcopacy and kind of the, the king's power over the church. So if we're looking at the relationship between how royalists are looking at the king and the church... What we see in contrast to the Covenanters is that they're very willing to give him the authority as the head of the church. Mm
0: -hmm. And they're
1: willing to give him authority not only to sort of enforce the true religion in the community, but also to participate in the creation of doctrines and ceremonies within the church. And that's a huge hinge point, I think, between Covenanters and Royalists when they're looking at what the king's authority over the church is. So that's a big that's a big point there, Um, whether it's inside the church or whether it's external to the church. So a royalist would say, well, the king's the head of the church. He's he's technically like the nurse father of the church. So he can change the ceremonies as long as they're not contrary to scripture. He can reform however he wants. He can institute bishops. That's all fine. By contrast, the covenant are saying, well, actually, his authority is only outside the church. He can only defend the true religion by, you know, punishing heresy or blasphemy in the civil state, but he can't actually interfere in reforming it. Um, And I think that's a big distinction, um, that the Covenanters are really trying to make sure that Christ is the only head of the church um, and they only follow Christ's law, not the king's law. So I do think that's a a big kind of contentious point is sort of where does the king's authority fall. And I think the Royalists are far happier to give the king more authority over the church, especially because if we go back to that category of Iophora, the Royalists tend to think, that's a larger category. So if something's not required or prohibited in scripture, then why can't the king sort of declare it or dictate it or whatever? So I think they're more willing to give him leniency and sort of mm-hmm. um, say, you know, reform however he wants. Whereas I think the covenants are very strict in what he can and cannot do.
0: Well, that makes sense. Yeah, if scripture doesn't say it, it doesn't necessarily prohibit it. So why not?
1: Exactly. Kind of a free for all, really. <laughs>
0: exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Where are they sourcing their ideas from? Uh, you know, a lot of your work and much of your work is, is an intellectual historian. So you're studying the history of ideas and how that how that motivates actions and, and shapes people's worldview. Uh, what are they reading? Who are they thinking about? How are they mustering various kinds of tracts or treatises in support or in defense of their respective positions?
1: Yeah. So that's an interesting question when I guess you break it down into the, the types of arguments that they're making, whether they're religious arguments or political ones. Mm, so... Mm-hmm. I think because they're they're intrinsically connected, so I, I hate to even divide them, but I think it's useful to think about it that way. And, so
0: you you are going to separate church and state then?
1: Yes, yeah, yes, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> um, just for for clarity of conversation. Um, <laughs> so I think in the political sense, the Covenanters. We'll start with the Covenanters first, and then kind of move to where the Royalists are drawing sure. from. So the Covenanters in the political sense are mining kind of a reform tradition of work. So often on resistance theory. So you've got kind of the standard tracks that are being read. So I'm thinking of, you know, the French Huguenot uh, writing, the Windikiae, Contra Tyranos. So that's a big work um, from the 1570s. And that's being read quite widely in Scotland by leading covenanters. And that, just, mm-hmm. that basically legitimizes resistance by inferior magistrates. So the covenanters are reading a lot of reformed works um, on those certain subjects on resistance and kind of just looking at sort of, I guess, precedent for their confessional tradition um, and, and looking at sort of Calvinist theories of resistance. So in terms of, religious side of things, they're very much still reading and engaging with reformed authors. So reformed theologians, as they're looking at these ideas about church government and sort of ceremony and doctrine. So that's, that's completely expected. And I think one of the unexpected elements of the Covenanters is that in their political thought, they're actually engaging as well with the Catholic scholastics, and they're using them quite favorably. And so it's funny when I bring that up. So if I tell People who are, you know, historical theologians or church historians, they often push back and they're often quite surprised by that. And they think that, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're using Catholic scholastics as an insult to other people, you know, by saying, oh, you're acting like, you know, a papist or you're acting Jesuitically. Um, And so they're really surprised that there's that sort of cross-confessional element. And when I tell historians of political thought, they're hardly surprised at all. And they're like, well, of course (laughs) they're using um, Catholic authors, you know. So it's kind of an interesting conversation depending on who you talk to. So one of the things that I explored quite a bit is how these Reformed Scots are using Catholic scholastic political theory. By that I mean there's a large body of political thought that's coming out, particularly amongst the Jesuits, but in the School of Salamanca in Spain um, is mm. kind of a hot spot for these these political treatises um, that deal a lot with legal categories. They deal a lot with ideas about origins of government those sorts of questions. Mm -hmm. And so the Covenanters are using quite a lot of that. So, for example, Samuel Rutherford, when he first opens Lex Rex, which is sort of seen as the pinnacle of of political writing in in Covenanted Scotland, when he first opens that, he has um, two questions about the origins of government and he cites 10 people. Nine of them are Catholic scholastics. One is Aristotle. So he's really putting himself in that tradition and when he's talking about politics. And I think the reason he's doing that is that Catholic scholastics are very willing to show the natural origins of government, so they want to say that government is created because human beings are social creatures. We want Mm -hmm. to create communities. It's not necessarily because we're all sinful and evil and so therefore we need government to kind of control us but it's because we want to flourish in a human community and so Mm -hmm. I think Rutherford really wants to bring that into the conversation. Partially because Catholic scholastics in general also support the idea that human beings elect their authorities and so it's not like God appoints a king over you and you can never resist the king. Instead God sort of gives people the power to mediate that so they can actually elect an official over them. I'm always a monarch because the Catholics do do believe in kind of a hierarchical nature. So I think that's really useful for what Rutherford's trying to do with government as well. And so I, I think that kind of cross-confessional context is really interesting, especially because I think Catholic scholastics can play a huge of role as authorities in this conversation, primarily because they're interested in very different questions. So the Catholic scholastics in this period aren't thinking about self-defense and resistance like reformed communities are. They're more thinking about imperial expansion, um, kind of how do you legitimize government over non-Christian peoples and non-Christian nations. So they're very interested in those questions, and that leads them to develop a lot of ideas on government and legitimate rule. And also, they have no vested interest in a Protestant conflict. So I think that's really helpful. So if someone like Samuel Rutherford is trying to defend his political position, Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier for him to turn to Catholics and say, well, they don't actually have any vested interest in this conversation. So I can use them as support without having any sort of baggage or, you know, you saying, of course, you would use that person, they support you. So I think it's it's really useful for him to do that. And so there is kind of that cross-confessional element in who the Covenanters are using. And the same actually goes for the royalists. Um, So the royalists are using a different side of the Catholic conversation. So it's important to realize as well that Catholic political thought isn't this kind of homogenous body. There's a lot of opinions that go into it. And so royalists are using a very different side of Catholic scholastic thought. So they're actually relying on the absolute sovereignists. So I'm thinking of people like Jean Baudin or William Barclay or Adam Blackwood. Mm-hmm. So they're really relying on sort of this legal tradition, which says that the king is the author of all law. And because he's the author of all law, he can never be held accountable to it. He can never be held accountable by inferior magistrates or ecclesiastical authorities, et cetera. So I think the royalists are really keen to use that sort of tradition and say, well, actually, you know, because he's the author and he's the absolute sovereign, he can never be resisted. So I do think you get this interesting dynamic of who they're relying on, not only kind of in the confessional tradition as you might expect, but then also outside of that to to different bodies of thought, you know, outside the, the reform tradition.
0: We could have an entire podcast actually on that subject. Uh, I know. <laughs> I have about fifteen follow up questions, um, but I think I'll just ask a couple. And and one is, uh, you know, I think I think you're right. I think a lot of people would be surprised that these individuals will be drawing on catholic thought and, and catholic intellectual thought to justify their positions because you you know you think you hear reformation it's like well they broke from rome and they don't want anything to do with that stuff anymore and so um right. you know you would you would think automatically that um, they're reading this stuff just so they can argue against it but they're but they're using it and so to what extent are they aware are both sides aware that they are drawing on Catholic intellectual thought and Catholic scholarship to justify what they're doing to argue against each other. Do they do they see any any contradiction in doing so? Does it strike them as strange, or do they just find it as a useful tool to advance their respective claims?
1: So again, that's that's quite complicated. I mean, both sides are doing it, you know. So you've got the Royalists and you've got the Covenanters, and they're all sort of equally yeah. using a Catholic political thought. So in a certain sense, they can't really criticize it because they're each doing it in different ways. But one of the things that you do see quite frequently is the royalist argument that the covenanters are acting Jesuitical or they're acting as papists. And mm-hmm. so the Jesuits at the time have this connotation of sort of radical king killers who, you know, blow up parliament, etc. And so the royalists are very keen to put the Covenanters in that camp and say well you're acting just like the Jesuits do partially because they're drawing on similar ideas about you know legitimate um, kind of voluntary election of authorities and when you can sort of elect new authorities and those sorts of questions. So one of the interesting things is that in Lex Rex Rutherford responds to that criticism and he says well actually you know here's all the reasons why we are not like the Jesuits but they're all theological reasons. They're all related to the church and sort of the position of the Pope and ceremony and those sorts of questions none of it is related to ideas about or of government or any of that it's all very like he's very much trying to just distinguish himself theologically from Mm -hmm. Catholics but not necessarily politically so you definitely do get a sense in which they are kind of accusing each other of aligning themselves with this sort of Catholic tradition more often you see that waged against the Covenanters rather than vice versa Um, but you also see defenses against it one of the most interesting kind of intellectual aspects of this that I have found is that one of the main Royalist arguments is that the Covenanters are actually putting the Presbytery in the place of the Pope. So the Presbytery is one of the highest kind of bodies of of Presbyterianism. And Mm -hmm. so there's this big conversation around the papal deposing power. So essentially that is the power of the Pope to look at a civil magistrate, excommunicate them from the church. And if they're excommunicated, then their legitimacy as a civil ruler can be challenged so that power was really contested with amongst Catholics, you know, not everyone agreed on that anyway. But you get a lot of royalists in Scotland who are now saying, well, the Covenanters are trying to do the same thing because they're trying to use Presbytery to excommunicate the king and therefore kind of absolve civil allegiance. And so you get this really interesting conversation there, I think, as well, where it's not necessarily about the authorities are drawing on, but actually kind of the similarity in the relationships between the church and the state that the royalists are trying to to engage the covenanters
0: in how does this fit in with the larger the emerging enlightenment developing in europe in the 17th and certainly by the 18th century because a lot of what i think what we're talking about here is social contract theory and you know that's a topic that's picked up by writers such as thomas hobbes Certainly, John Locke uh, picks this up late in the 17th century, and his ideas are very influential in the development of the American colonies and certainly the American Revolution. And John Locke is heavily involved with the, the settlement of the Carolinas. How do these religious ideas fit within that kind of uh, intellectual context and this wider conversation taking place across the board?
1: So I think when we think of social contract, I hesitate to use that term a little bit just in reference mm-hmm. to the Covenanters. Um, obviously, because it's a term that is associated, as you mentioned, with the Enlightenment quite a bit later So I've seen arguments that people like Rutherford are actually prototypes for Locke, uh, for social contract theory. Um, You get a lot of kind of conversations going around about the emergence of human rights and where the Covenanters sort of fall into that. I personally think this is a bit different from social contract in the Mm -hmm. sense that it's very duty based and there's always the element of the covenant with God. And I think that's missing a bit from social contract theory. So the idea, I think the fundamental idea that the people have some sort of, you know, relationship, some sort of contract with their ruler is is still the same. Um, And I think when that contract breaks down is when you can legitimize resistance. And I think that that's quite common across the two. And but I would say where it's a bit different for the covenanters is that all of this is bound up in the idea of the duty to God. And it's Mm -hmm. a threefold covenant between king, God and subjects and so for them, you know, when you voluntarily elect your, your authority, that person has been sort of confirmed by God. You've chosen them, but it's been confirmed by God. And then at the coronation and through the coronation oath, that king then agrees to rule for his people's, you know, safety and health and good and all of that. But he also agrees to defend the true religion. He agrees to protect the true religion. And so that's really, really important because then when we come to resistance theory amongst the covenanters, they're saying, well, King Charles... Clearly, is not defending the religion. He's actually attacking it. Um, he's trying to corrupt it. He's trying to bring it back to Catholicism. So for them, that is that's very much the reason why I think they can they can become so religiously militant is because they're now looking at this and saying, well, that duty to protect the true religion has devolved mm-hmm. now to inferior magistrates, has devolved to us. And um, There's a really interesting manuscript actually from the National Library of Scotland. So I'm working on a big transcription of it for a collection from the Scottish History Society. It's a really fascinating manuscript um, in which the author, unfortunately it's anonymous. I think I know who it is, but I don't want to say yet. Um, so the manuscript is anonymous. It's written in 1638 or 1639, kind of based on the context of it. and the author of the manuscript takes large sections of the eye So it's, it's an originally mm-hmm. a Latin treatise and he's actually translating it into English. And he's basically, I don't want to say plagiarizing because it's not the same thing, but he basically doesn't reference it at all. He just kind of creates large sections of English translation out of it. But one of the interesting things he does is the eye is very rights-based and it's very kind of caught up in rights to self-defense, etc. But he actually merges that with the idea that God requires his, you know, followers essentially to resist idolatry. So if the king is engaging mm-hmm. in idolatry, if they don't actively militantly resist that, then they're they're capable or they're, you know, culpable of the same sin. So no longer, I mean, that kind of goes against the royalist argument where they're saying, well, just bear the burden, you know, if if the king is engaging in sinful, t- tyrannical behavior, you know, just, just bear it. Um, don't engage in the sin yourself, but just sort of submit to yeah. it and then, just bear the punishment. What this treatise actually says is if you do that, if you submit to this, even if you don't partake in it yourself, but by not actively resisting, you're actually engaging in sin. So I think that's really interesting because it's a very, very motivational call to kind of active armed resistance, mm-hmm. saying that, you know, if we don't resist the idolatry that Charles is instituting, well, then we're, cap- you know, we're basically just engaging in the same sin. Yeah, it's very, very interesting um, dynamic that we've got going on there. And I would say, just to bring this all back, I would say that that covenantal obligation, that duty to God, that duty to the true religion is really foundational here. And I think that disappears a bit when we get to social contract theory. So obviously the same sort of consent of the governed and, you know, the, the conditions of rule is the same. But mm-hmm. I do think there's such an emphasis on duty that allows the Covenanters to be so religiously militant that we we see disappearing later on. Uh,
0: resistance to tyrants is obedience to God then. In,
1: yes. <laughs> in many ways.
0: Speaking of tyrants or non-tyrants, depending on your perspective, I did want to talk about Charles the first a little bit because we mentioned him a little bit earlier in our conversation. And, and most folks who listen to this show We'll probably be familiar with Charles I uh, in the context of the English Civil Wars, of course, his execution. He's a main antagonist. And, and his partner, William Laud, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he's the main antagonist who are driving you know, a lot of colonists to settle in New England to try to escape what they see as a resurgence of ideology and, and, and popishism and whatnot. Folks may also know that uh, during the English Civil Wars, the colonial governors have to decide, are they going to side with Parliament or are they going to side with the king? And it puts him in a very awkward position. But they I doubt they know a whole lot about the relationship that Charles has with the Scottish Church. And it does sound like it wasn't a great one. Uh and so can you uh can you give us a sense of of what his attitude towards the church was and what he thought he ought to be doing. Uh, I think we have a clue already of uh, what the Covenant folks are going to think about this and about his attempted impositions. But uh, what's his perspective? As you said, he he's born in Scotland, right? If I remember rightly, yeah. He is a Scot in a sense, but he's much more of an Englishman by this point, and he has no real connection with Scotland, not in the ways that James the and First did. What's he thinking about all this This covenant that emerges in this uh, almost um, act of defiance, as uh, he might interpret it?
1: Right. So one of the things that complicates this is that Charles has so much experience with the Church of England, where he Mm -hmm. is the head of the Church of England. And that's perfectly acceptable. So when he looks at the Scottish Church, he then wants to be the head of the Church of Scotland in the same way that he's the head of the Church of England. So he wants sort of that same royal supremacy over the national church in Scotland. But of course, he's dealing with the complication that Presbyterians don't want to have, you know, that the king essentially is the head of the church. So that was something that his father struggled with as well. So James in, you know, the late 1590s, early 1600s is writing quite prolifically about the incompatibility of absolute monarchy and Presbyterianism. He sees that as a real threat to his his political power and his power over the church. And so I think that's kind of the same thing that Charles is seeing, And he really wants to have the same authority that he has in England. Um, but he's kind of coming up against, obviously, a former church government that doesn't naturally lend itself to that. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that he wants is to bring the Church of Scotland into closer alignment with the Church of England. And that's where all of his really contentious ecclesiastical reforms come into play. Because obviously he's really interested in creating a book of common prayer that's similar to the English prayer book. He wants to create similar systems of doctrine and governance in both churches. Um, And he's using Archbishop William Law to help him do that. So I think in a lot of ways, he's really just looking to bring those two churches into a closer relationship. But Scots are very much resisting that because they have their own kind of interpretation, of what true religion is, and sort of the, the correct form of church government. So I would say that's probably his main approach to the Church of Scotland. And one of the things that becomes, I think, so contentious is that he's willing to use his royal prerogative mm. to sort of bust through the Book of Common Prayer. He's, he's willing to use that and sort of in some ways disregard, you know, the the complaints of ministers, the protests, Um, you know, by the time they write the national Covenant, they're very, a lot of the covenants are very clear that they've they've tried to supplicate the king, they've gone through the king's commissioner, they've tried multiple avenues, and this is kind of the the last resort. And so he's very much, I think, kind of keen on pushing through his innovations or his religious reforms, um, perhaps against the wishes of most of you know, the, the Scottish
0: Presbyterians. Mm-hmm. Well, his sense of uh, the importance of the prerogative and his right to rule ultimately costs him his head in, in the Civil yes. War with Parliament. And for a time, England is a republic. Uh, so what happens to the governors then? I mean, during this period where there is no monarch and they don't have to worry about, presumably, the imposition of a monarch trying to impose uh, his ideas, his or her ideas about right to rule, and legitimacy in, in church and state. What happens in that period during the interregnum when there's no monarch to worry about?
1: Yeah, so that's it's also interesting as well because the covenanting movement undergoes a massive split in mm. 1647 with the engagement. So, with the engagement, you get some covenanters who say, Okay, we've had enough of the fighting. We're going to now switch sides and um, ally with, you know, Charles here. And eventually they're defeated. But so you get the anti-engagers. So, you get now kind of the more radical covenanters. So, people like Warriston or Rutherford, where they when after the engagement kind of ends and the Covenanters and the King are defeated, now you get this radical kind of party and they sort of purge Parliament and the General Assembly of people who were Engagers before. So they're very keen on sort of radicalizing or kind of keeping this, this staunchly Presbyterian party. But then obviously with the execution of the King, no one really supports that. And so then you get the Scots who all of a sudden are saying, well, look at sort of the radical implications of perhaps what we've been saying. All along, well, we don't support, you know, we never supported Mm -hmm. killing the king. We just sort of wanted to challenge him. So then you get, again, this kind of radical shift back where most of the Covenanters don't support that. And so then obviously you get Scotland coronating Charles II and, you know, supporting him uh, kind of in exchange for his agreement to to institute Presbyterianism. So it, it's a contentious. They don't love him, you know, but they find him politically useful. Kind of at that stage we already see a fracturing of the covenanting movement. And so I think then when we get into the Cromwellian period, most of the covenanters sort of just return to I would say, kind of just return to their their normal lives in a way. Um, so some of them go back, if they were regents or professors in universities, they go back to teaching. Someone like Robert Bailey, who he was really against, he was, I guess, more in favor of the engagement. So he was, he was kind of more moderate than a lot of the radical Kirk party members. So he sort of disappears under the surface a little bit. So you get a lot of the Covenanters who in the kind of interregnum period, either they kind of ally with Cromwell and they sort of help Cromwell or they just kind of go back to their normal lives. So unfortunately, my work kind of stops in 1651. So it stops Mm -hmm. with the Cromwellian invasion. So I I wouldn't know too much really about sort of that interregnum period and how everything goes through there. You know, obviously 1660 doesn't look great for the (laughs) Covenanters who are living. Um, (laughs) Many of them meet very uh, untimely, unkind demises. Um, But it is an interesting period, nevertheless. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, maybe maybe that can be the subject of you know, what happens uh, next. That can be the sequel uh, to your book. But actually, well, speaking of uh, deposed kings and kings over the water, uh, in in the 18th century, there are the pretender kings hanging out in Rome. Your next project actually is going to take you to Rome, allegedly, uh, if, uh, if things shake out. And hopefully they will uh, during COVID. But you're already in Europe, so that actually makes things slightly easier for you than it is for those of us who are still in the States trying to get into Europe, uh, which is all the more difficult right now. But could you give us a a brief sense of of what you'll be doing in Rome? Because it is connected to your larger work. It is a a project that looks at England and Scotland, but you have to go to Rome to do it.
1: Yes. So it's kind of a vague project at the moment, but what I'm hoping to do Um, It's based a bit on my my doctoral research that I've just talked about. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that really struck me when I was doing this research was the people who either studied abroad at various points and then came back to Scotland or people who were exiled um, to different countries in continental Europe, people who fled because of persecution, all sorts of things. So I was really interested in, okay, where do Scots go outside of Scotland in this period and how does that potentially influence the ways they're thinking about the conflict back home? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to um, kind of expand that as well and look at England. So basically what I'll be doing in Rome is looking at priests from England and Scotland who went to study in Rome at the um, Scots College and the English College. So those are two colleges that are still in Rome now, and they have archives in various forms. So the archives at the Venerable English College are great, um, and they're they're just now kind of getting open to the public and quite widespread. The archives at the Scots College, they don't really have an archivist, um, and it's kind of, it's a very small function, um, so it'd be interesting trying to use that anyway. Um, But basically, I'm looking at the interactions between Scottish priests, English priests, and local Italian Jesuits. So there's a lot of tension that goes on about education, about political ideas between these three different groups, and so I'm really interested in how are English and Scottish priests being educated, and how are they interacting with the local Jesuits in Italy, and how is that influencing their approach to the Catholic church back home? So I hope that in a broader sense then i'm hoping to expand that beyond catholicism and look mm-hmm. at protestants as well so protestants who left scotland to go to continental europe so say like the low countries or the german-speaking lands um and how their experiences abroad then affect their opinions of um, kind of what's going on back home
0: well that sounds like an exciting project and you know more exciting because as you said i think you said the scots college the archives are they don't have an archivist so they're, and they're potentially not well organized i mean in some ways, you want to walk into an archive knowing what's there, but in a lot of times you don't. And so that might be a fun opportunity.
1: <laughs> I think so. I mean, I think I know um, I know there's basically one box and I know how many documents it contains and I know the time frame and that's about it. So yeah. um, it, it could be a complete treasure trove, or it could be totally not what I expect. So I'm going to have to see how that goes. But <laughs> well, fingers crossed.
0: <laughs> uh, fingers crossed. I hope it's the former. And uh, as, if, uh, if, as if you weren't doing enough work right now, you've also started a podcast, which I, I wanted to talk about just briefly as it closed here. Can you tell us about your podcast?
1: Sure. So I did just start a new podcast. It's called Research in Scottish History. So I am one of the members of the the kind of council for the Scottish History Network. And so one of the things that we do is put together a weekly digest when things are actually happening and not, you know, lockdown. So we would put together that digest every week. And so one of the things that we always talked about was that there's not a lot of conversation between historians of Scotland, but who mm-hmm. look at different time periods or perhaps different approaches. So often we go to conferences, that sort of thing, we stick to our same time period or we stick to, you know, the type of approach we have. So I would go to a lot of intellectual history conferences, but you know, maybe miss some of the other work that's being done. So one of the things I wanted to do was look at this widespread interest in Scottish history because there's so many people who are really interested, not even just inside academia, but also with a lot of public history and museums. There's always great kind of events and and talks going on for public audiences, and so I thought a podcast would be a really great way to just bring all areas of Scottish history to a more accessible format. And I also thought, you know, while we're all locked down and we really can't go and and share our research, it might be nice just to kind of start that conversation, and so that was kind of the thinking behind it was just to bring a lot of that research out to people who are just really interested in scottish history mm-hmm. who maybe don't study the same period or the same perspective um, but just really want to learn more about all the research that's being done
0: well, that's fantastic I and mean, i i i guess i wouldn't call myself a historian of scotland properly because i come at it by way of the american revolution but i you know having been in the circle for a while i mean i i think you know i totally agree with your observation that do we we tend to stick to our own silos and have no sense of what other colleagues are doing. And it's not that way here in the United States. I mean, in, in the States, in our early American professional organizations, you know, we we all kind of cross-pollinate, uh, I think, in a lot of ways. But it, it, it strikes me uh, that in Scotland, and in, I think actually largely in Britain as well, it's not that way. It's sort of, here's what I'm doing. you know, Terrific that you're doing this, but I'm going to be in Hall H if you're going to be in Hall C, and maybe we'll have a coffee later. So I think this is a, a fantastic format. And uh, I've already actually learned a bunch. Of, you had Mike Leon talking about the Caribbean and that's a hot topic right now. And so I think, uh, yes. uh, you know, I learned, I've been learning more about that because some of the, the figures in my work ended up in Jamaica, although I don't cover the Caribbean. Uh, really, I, I sort of stick to the mainland. So I've been uh, already learning uh, from his work and and learning from uh, the podcast in general. So thanks for doing it and good luck. And And where can folks find it?
1: So it's available on all kind of major podcasting platforms. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you really listen to it. And I also have a Twitter page up and going for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can get in contact that way. If you have Twitter, um, you can find either me personally or the podcast page. I'm always happy to hear from people, you know, suggestions, engagement.
0: And what's your podcast handle on Twitter?
1: Research in Scott Scottist. <laughs> I'll have to, I'll actually like, uh, it might be easier for me to...
0: Yeah we'll, we'll post yeah we'll post links yeah, to it on the, on the say, show notes it's page, yeah.
1: weird um, but yeah if you just like on twitter if you just look for you know research in scottish history yeah. that should that should pop up i i think i didn't know that you could create your own twitter handle and so i just took the the one it gave me which was probably it, an accident <laughs> there,
0: there is an art form to it and i i i don't think i realized that later and now it's it's like i think i joined in 2007 and it's like at this point I'm not going to change it. Cause that would just probably be disruptive. So But, you know, it is what it is. And and I'm glad that you're doing it. And and we'll certainly boost it uh, or, you know, link to it on the show notes so that people can find it and hopefully subscribe.
1: Yeah, please do. I mean, we've got a great kind of lineup as well for the next couple of months. So we've got kind of medieval history coming up um, Mm -hmm. as well as art history um, and then sort of more cultural history as well. So there's going to be quite a lot. It covers all different time periods, all different types of history. So hopefully someone can find some interest in it uh, in all its various ways.
0: It is a, it's a monthly podcast, right? It is, is monthly, correct?
1: yes.
0: Very good. Um, that's, a, that's a good way to do it, I think. Yes. <laughs> that was well, the goal. <laughs> yeah. Well, Carrie, thank you so very much. We appreciate you taking the time, especially uh, coming to us across uh, the water from Ireland. And best of luck with your research. Hopefully you make it to Rome and uh, and good luck with the podcast. We'll be listening.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Busky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's Media Department. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite programs. Have a question for the podcast team? Send it to us at conversationspodcast at mountvernon.org, and we might feature it on the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.